Chapter 15, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollection of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 15, Return to America, Part 2. Early one morning, several of these youths came upon deck, and meeting the doctor there, one of them exclaimed, It is cold as hell this morning, ain't it, doctor? I am unable to state the exact height of the thermometer in that locality, said he gravely, but I am afraid you will know all about it sometime if you are not careful. The laugh was decidedly against the young man, but one of his companions, who thought considerably of himself, seemed anxious to take up the cudgel, and he remarked, Dr. Baird, your brother clergymen are making a great ado in New York about the state of crime there, and they have got a smelling committee who go about and smell out all filthy places there and report them to the public. Indeed, they do say that several of the clergy and some laymen of the Arthur Chapin stripe have got a book in which they have written down a list of all of the bad houses in new york i should like to see that book ha ha i wonder if they really have got one i don't know how that is replied dr baird but casting his eyes heavenward i can assure you that there is a book in which all such places are recorded as well as the names of those who occupy or visit them and in due time it will be open to public gaze the young man looked cowed and extending his hand to Dr. Baird, said, Sir, I confess I have made too light of a serious matter. I sincerely beg your pardon if I have offended you. You have not offended me, said the doctor, with a benignant smile, but I am rejoiced to perceive that you have offended your own sense of propriety and morality. I trust you will not forget it. This was the last attempt on board that ship to try a lance with Dr. Baird. Several years later, when I was engaged in the Jenny Lind enterprise, Dr. Baird called upon me. Having been so long a missionary in Sweden, the native land of the great songstress, he had a special desire to make her acquaintance and listen to her singing. I introduced him to her and gave him the entree to her concerts. He improved the opportunity, and he also made frequent calls upon her. She became much interested in him. Indeed, on several occasions, she contributed liberally to the charitable institutions he had recommended to her favorable notice. During my residence in London, I made the acquaintance of an American, whom I will call Simpson, and his wife. They had originally been poor and accustomed to pretty low society. Their opportunities for education had been limited, and they were what we should term vulgar, ignorant, common people but by a turn of fortune's wheel they became suddenly rich and like some other fools who know nothing of their own country they must rush to make the tour of europe mr simpson was an ignorant good-natured fellow fond of sporting large amounts of jewelry was very social with englishmen always bragging of our glorious country and was particularly given to boasting that he was once poor and now he was rich Whenever he met Americans, he was delighted and insisted on the privilege of standing treats to all around, familiarly slapping on the back and treating as an old chum 
any American gentleman, however refined, whom he might come in contact with. Mrs. Simpson was a coarse woman, yet always studying politeness and particularly the proper pronunciation of words. She was ever trying to appear refined, and she prided herself upon understanding all the rules of etiquette and fashion. She was continually purchasing new dresses and fashionable articles of apparel. She loaded herself down with diamonds and tawdry jewelry, and would frequently appear in the streets with six or eight different dresses in a day. But, strange to say, with all her pride and vanity with regard to being considered the perfection of refinement, she had an awful habit of using profane language. She really seemed to think this an evidence of good breeding. Perhaps she thought it a luxury which rich people were entitled to enjoy. This peculiarity occasionally led to most ludicrous scenes. The Simpsons were from New England, and in their conversation they had the nasal Yankee twang and the peculiar pronunciation of the illiterate class of the New England people. Those who have heard John E. Owens in Soul and Shingle are aware that preserved fruits are in New England called sauce, by the vulgar pronounced sass. But when Mrs. Simpson heard the word in England pronounced sauce, she was very anxious that John, her husband, should adopt the new pronunciation. He tried hard to learn, but would frequently forget himself and say sass. Mrs. Simpson would lose her patience on such occasions and reprove her husband sharply. Indeed, if he escaped without receiving some profane epithet from the lips of his would-be fashionable wife, it was a wonder. On one occasion I happened to meet them at dinner with an English family in London, to whom I had, in the way of business, introduced them a few weeks previously. We had scarcely taken our seats at the table before Simpson happened to discover a dish of sweetmeats at the further corner of the table. Turning to the servant, he said, "'Please pass me that sass.' Mrs. Simpson's eyes flashed indignantly, and she angrily exclaimed, almost in a scream, "'Say sauce! Don't say sass! I'd rather hear you say H-L-A-D-D sight!' That our English hostess was amazed and shocked, it is needless to say, although she preserved her equanimity better than could be expected. As for myself, I confess I could not refrain from laughing, which, of course, served only to increase the wrath of Mrs. Simpson. Fourteen years subsequent to this event, I called on this English lady in company with an American friend. In the course of conversation, I happened to ask her if she remembered about Mrs. Simpson's sass. She took from a drawer her memorandum book and showed us the above expression verbatim, which she said she wrote down the same day it was uttered, and she added she had never been able to think of it since without laughing. I met Simpson and his wife at a hotel in Marseilles, France, in the summer of 1845. Mrs. Simpson said she and Simpson had almost determined not to go to France at all, when they heard it was necessary to hire an interpreter to tell what folks said. Said she, I told Simpson I didn't want to go among a set of folks who were such cussed fools they couldn't speak English. But of course we must go to France just for the speech of the people when we get home, so here we are. For my part, she continued, I speak English to these Frenchmen anyhow, and if they can't understand me they can go without understanding. The other morning I said to my waiter my tea was too sweet, I found afterwards that too sweet, tout de suite, was French for very quick. 
Oui, madame, he replied. Oui, oui, que voulez-vous? What will you have? Too sweet, too sweet, I repeated. Too sweet, too sweet. Then I pointed to my tea and said again, Too sweet! D dash dash N, your stupid head. Can't you understand? Too sweet? The fool jumped around like a hen with her head cut off and kept saying, Oui, oui, madame, too sweet. Qu'est-ce que c'est? What is it? Finally, an English gen gentleman asked me what was the matter, and when I told him, he explained by telling me that too sweet, tout de suite, in French meant quick, very quick, and that was what made the stupid waiter jump around so. But D dash dash N, the French waiter, she continued, I have got quit of them finally, for I have found out a language we both understand. The same day my tea was too sweet, Simpson was out at dinner time, and I went to the table alone. I called for soup, and the sapheads brought me some sort of preserves. I then called for fish, and the fools could not understand me. Then I said, bring me some chicken, and D dash dash enum, they danced about in a quandary till I thought I should starve to death. But finally I thought of roast duck. I am dreadfully fond of duck, and I knew they always had stuffed ducks at dinner time. So I called to the waiter once more and pointed to my plate and said, Quack, 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 now do you understand? And the fool began to laugh and said, Oui, madame, oui, oui, and off he ran and soon brought me the nicest piece of duck you ever saw. So now, every day at dinner, I say, Quack, quack, and I always get some first-rate duck. I congratulated her on having discovered a universal language. The same day, I met a young Englishman in the hotel who had been traveling in Spain. During our conversation, we were summoned to dinner. At the table, dote, Simpson happened to be seated exactly opposite us. As we continued our conversation, Simpson heard it, and his attention was particularly arrested, it being something of a novelty to meet a stranger in these parts, who spoke our native tongue. The English gentleman mentioned that he ascended the Pyrenees the week previous. I should like to have been with you, I remarked, but I am almost too fat and lazy to climb high mountains. I suppose you found it pretty hard work? Yes, we had to rough it some. We encountered considerable snow, he replied. Snow, exclaimed Simpson in astonishment. The Englishman looked with surprise at this interruption, for he did not know Simpson, nor had he ever heard him speak before. However, he quietly replied, Yes, sir, snow. Not by a d-d sight you didn't, replied Simpson emphatically. That won't go down. Snow in August won't do. I have seen snow myself in Connecticut, the last of September, but it won't do in August by a thundering sight. The Englishman sprang to his feet, but I hit him a nudge and said, It is all right. Excuse me. Let me introduce my friend, Mr. Simpson, from America. He has traveled some, and it is pretty hard to take him in with big stories. He comprehended the matter instantly and sat down. Yes, sir, remarked Simpson. I have heard travelers before, but August is a little too early for snow. But suppose I should say it was not this year's snow, said the Englishman, who was ready now to carry on the joke. Worse and worse, exclaimed Simpson, with a triumphant laugh. If it would not melt in August, when in thunder would it melt? You might as well say it would lay all the year round. I give it up, said the Englishman. You are too sharp for me. Simpson was delighted and took special pains for several days to inform the interpreters 
in the neighboring hotels and billiard salons that he had took down an impudent john bull who had tried to stuff him with the idea that he had seen snow in august i met the simpsons afterwards in brussels and the head of the family who had heard nothing but french spoken outside of his own circle for a long time called me in great glee to the door to see and hear some dutchmen who were conversing together in the street there exclaimed simpson those fellows are dutchmen i know by their talk very well said i how far do you suppose those dutchmen are from their native place why replied simpson i suppose they came from western pennsylvania that's where i have always seen em with the exception of the brief time passed in making two short visits to america i had now passed three years with general tom thumb in great britain and on the continent the entire period had been a season of unbroken pleasure and profit i had immensely enlarged my business experiences and had made money and many friends among those to whom i am indebted for special courtesies while i was abroad are dr c s brewster whose prosperous professional career in russia and france is well known and henry sumner esq who occupied a high position in the social and literary circles of paris and who introduced me to george sand and to many other distinguished persons to both these gentlemen as well as to mr john nemo an english gentleman connected with galignani's messenger mr lorenzo draper the american consul and mr dion bucicalt i was largely indebted for attention in london two gentlemen especially merit my warm acknowledgments for many valuable favors i refer to the late thomas brittell publisher haymarket and mr r fillingham jr fenchurch street i was also indebted to mr g p putnam at that time a london publisher for much useful information we had visited nearly every city and town in france and belgium all the principal places in england and scotland besides going to belfast and dublin in ireland i had several times met daniel o'connell in private life and in the irish capital i heard him make an eloquent and powerful public repeal speech in conciliation hall in dublin after exhibiting a week in rotunda hall our receipts on the last day were two hundred sixty one pounds or one thousand three hundred five dollars and the general also received fifty pounds or two hundred fifty dollars for playing the same evening at the theatre royal thus closing a truly triumphant tour we set sail for new york arriving in february eighteen forty seven end of chapter fifteen part two recording by nancy cochran gergen gilbert arizona